1: What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true.
0: You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business
1: differently so you can too. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry and I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So, Tracy, the name Robert Houdin came up on the show recently. It was on our classic episode that we ran about Harry Houdini. Yep. Because he's sometimes just called Houdin. That's wrong, and we'll talk about it in a minute. But because he was the magician that Houdini named himself after and then debunked, that's kind of part of why he showed up in that episode. But also, that's part of the lore of kind of magic culture. Um, as a note, though, here, Robert Houdin is is his last name, both words together. His first name was not Robert. Robert had been his last name at birth, but then he hyphenated when he got married. And we're going to talk about all of that and a lot more, so much more, that this became a two-parter. And that's even paring down an awful lot of his story because there's a lot written about him. This is interesting because Robert Houdin's story is actually kind of tricky to pin down. He wrote an autobiography, his memoirs, which is probably ghostwritten, Confidence d'un Prés de Digitur, in the late 1860s, after he retired from his stage career. But that was definitely a book that was written to be more of an entertainment than an accurate history. And some parts of it are probably entirely fabricated. We'll talk about some of those uh, almost 40 years after that, Houdini wrote a book called The Unmasking of Robert-Houdin, in which he goes point by point through his once hero's book to show what was not factual. He also is basically saying, hey, this guy didn't invent all the stuff he claimed he invented. And we'll talk about some of those in, in specifics. However, uh, Houdini's work <laughs> in The Unmasking doesn't really dissect the early part of Robert-Houdin's life. Houdini wrote of it, quote, Because of his supreme egotism, his obvious desire to make his autobiography picturesque and interesting rather than historically correct, and his utter indifference to dates, exact names of places, theaters, books, etc., it is extremely hard to present logical and consistent statements regarding his life. Other biographers, though, particularly Christian Fechner, who amassed the largest private collection of robert Udent artifacts and research materials during his lifetime. Uh, he and others have worked to verify, clarify, and correct the original account, though. And so that is where we're going to begin. At the beginning.
0: He was born Jean-Eugène Robert in Blois, France, which is a Loire River Valley town about 180 kilometers south-southwest of Paris. And it was, as Robert Audin noted in his writing, where King Louis XII was born. Robert Audin's mother was Marie-Catherine Guillon, who died when Jean-Eugène was still a small child. His father, Prosper Robert, was a watchmaker, both Dan and Houdini report the date of his birth as December 6th, 1805, but that actually seems to be incorrect based on documentation. He was born the day after that, December 7th. Fechner's biography of Roberudan makes the case in footnotes that he would have known his birthday. It's clearly marked in all the documents. But it seems like the family always celebrated it on December 6th due to a, quote, misinterpretation of the revolutionary calendar.
1: So for a little bit of clarity there, in 1793, the French Republican calendar had been introduced to replace the Gregorian calendar, and it stripped out religious days... That seems fine, but then it also completely reorganized the year with different month names. It switched over to a 10-day week. There was this whole base 10 approach to defining the year. You can see where that would be confusing. And I actually want to do an episode on it uh, because the logic of that decision was pretty entertaining and how it played out was pretty entertaining.
0: Yeah, I knew I knew there had been a different calendar during that time, but I did not realize how different it was
1: Right, it wasn't just renaming existing months. Those months didn't exist anymore. So 1805, the year Jean-Eugène was born, was the last full year that that had been used. His father's profession was something he was interested in from an early age.
0: He talks about playing with his father's tools from the time he was tiny, because as he wrote, quote, "...those implements were my toys and delight." I learned how to use them as other children learned to walk and talk. We mentioned that Jean-Eugène's mother died when he was still young, but that death was brought about by another family tragedy, which was the death of Jean-Eugène's brother, who, like their father, was named Prosper. And after the death of two-year-old Prosper, Mary Catherine's health declined sharply. She died in 1809 when Jean-Eugène was four years old.
1: Initially, after Marie Catherine's death, the remaining children, Jean Eugène and a sister named Marie Céline, were cared for by a relative so that their father Prosper could continue to manage his business. In 1810, Prosper remarried to Marguerite Rosalie Metivy, but just as the Robert home was stabilizing again, Jean Eugène became quite ill. We don't know the specific nature of this illness he had when he was a child, but it kept him confined at home for several years, starting when he was just five years old. And it was during this confinement that a neighbor who often visited started teaching him sleight of hand.
0: Prosper envisioned an educated life for his son. And so, according to Robert O'Donnell's account, sent him away to school in Orleans at the age of 11 This is another inaccuracy. He was actually 13 at the time. The time that he spent confined at home didn't seem to have a negative effect on his ability to integrate into a boarding school. He was a good student. He won a number of awards in history, Latin, and Greek. He also made traps for mice, and once he'd caught them, he built little machines that they would run through mouse power, including a small water pump. Although he did well in school, Robert Dan wrote that the happiest day of his life was the day that he left. Once again, that date's unclear, and we can't really be sure whether he received a diploma or
1: not. Yeah, there's no surviving documentation if he did. After his schooling was complete, Jean-Eugène returned home to Blois and also spent time at his grandfather's cottage in the countryside nearby. He described this time in which he had no obligations as a, quote, earthly paradise. And it was while idly walking around town one day in October of 1823 that he happened upon a public performance. This was a cup-and-ball show done by a traveling performer, and Robert Audin described this performer as, quote, a tall fellow with a quick eye, a sunburnt face, long and crispy hair, and he stemmed his fist in his side while he held his head impudently high. His costume, though rather loud, was still cleanly, and announced a man who probably had some hay in his boots. Jean-Eugène was so
0: enthralled that when it finished and the performer offered to sell him a pamphlet describing his secrets, he gladly bought it. But this really only contained the dialogue that the performer had used in the show and some very purposefully vague notes about the trick that he was doing. There was no real explanation of how the trick was done. So just in case you don't know what the cup and ball trick is, it's an act where a performer moves three cups and three balls around in varying stacks, basically making it appear as though the balls are passing through the cups. So not quite if you were thinking of the one where there's one ball and cups and like there's just the one ball and you're trying to keep it's a little more complex than that.
1: Yeah, it's not the one that's like the the precursor to three-card Monty. Right. It's like a a, a thing where matter appears to have been warped a little. Yes.
0: So this is a trick that people still do today. You can easily find how-to videos nowadays on
1: how to do it online. Yeah, you can learn magic online, which I love. Um, According to Robert Dam, the version he saw that day used nutmegs and goblets, and it went like this. Quote During a long series of tricks, the nutmegs, at first invisible, appeared at the finger ends of the conjurer. Then they passed through the cups, under the table, into a spectator's pockets, and finally emerged to the general delight from the nose of a young looker on. But of course, Robert did not have the benefit of the internet to figure this one out, so he was really disappointed at having spent money on this booklet to learn nothing. He tried to hunt down the conjurer, who he calls Dr. Garlosbach in his memoir, but though he tracked him to a nearby inn, the innkeeper told him the performer had vanished, incidentally not paying his bill. Clearly, Jean-Eugène was fascinated with sleight of hand and other tricks early on, but his career path did not lead him there initially. And we're going to talk about all of that after a sponsor break. From an early age, Jean-Eugène had wanted to be a watchmaker like his father and to also make other clockwork mechanisms. But his father, Prosper, was not actually supportive of this idea. He had envisioned that his children would have greater socioeconomic status than he did, so he wanted his surviving son to be a lawyer. According to Robert Houdin, his father told him, quote, Consider, it would be unreasonable to bury the 10 years schooling for which I made such heavy sacrifices in my shop. Remember, too, that after 35 years hard work, I have been hardly able to save sufficient provision for my old age. Then, pray, change your resolution, and give up your mania for making a parcel of filings. So,
0: for a while, Robert Dan worked in an unpaid apprenticeship as a clerk for a notary. He copied legal papers there. By all accounts, he had just extraordinarily beautiful handwriting. So, while this work was surely tedious, he was very, very good at it and also hated it.
1: Yeah, there are examples you can find of some of these documents that he copied in various biographies of him and he does have handwriting so beautiful it looks like art. Like it's legible but also very calligraphic and it's very very pretty. But if you don't like it, doesn't matter. <laughs> uh one day his father had received a snuff box which had been brought into his shop for repair. This box sounds incredible. According to Robert Houdin, it had a clockwork scene that was embedded in the lid. And this was a hunting scene that featured a rabbit running, pursued by a hunter and his dog. And when we say that, it's not still, it's literally a clockwork that's moving. The tiny clockwork hunter could shoulder his rifle and fire it. The object reportedly made a popping sound at this point in the scene, and then the rabbit would run away, followed by the dog. This all sounds really mind-blowing and complex, and Jean-Eugène said that he surreptitiously drew a detailed diagram of all of the snuffbox lid's workings. He did not dare work on that actual box himself, but he had the idea that he could make a copy of it. So he got up early every morning and worked secretly in his father's shop before he went to work, It took a year, but he completed his replica, and when he assembled all the pieces, it worked. And when he showed this to his father, thinking, ha ha, I will win him over, he will say, yes, of course you can be a watchmaker, this is your passion. And Prosper was impressed, but then he told him, quote, you had better take no pride in your skill, for it may injure your prospects. He
0: moved next to a salaried position in a lawyer's office, basically as an office boy who ran errands and kept the offices tidy. This job was in Averay, a bit north of Blois, and for the first time, jean Eugène had money and free time. He also had access to the firm's library. He used that library to expand his knowledge, particularly in the area of the natural sciences, He was trying to reconcile himself to a future as a notary, but he also could not stifle his impulses to work on creating these little machines. Before long, he had redesigned the canary cage that his boss kept in the waiting room to entertain waiting clients so that the birds activated mechanisms that let them access food and baths and better perches with treats. This led to a serious discussion with his boss that did not end the way you might expect. The notary offered to speak to Prosper Robert on behalf of Jean-Eugène and to make the case that really, the younger Robert was not going to be happy and fulfilled in any job unless it took advantage of his inventive love of the mechanical world. This actually worked. (laughs) Prosper, who had been so opposed to his becoming a watchmaker, finally acquiesced. At this point, Prosper had sold his business to one of Jean-Eugène's older cousins, Jean-Martin Robert, who became his mentor in watchmaking. The two men would be in business together for the next four and a half decades, although not in watchmaking.
1: No, some of it was in watchmaking, but not all of it. Uh, because cousin Robert encouraged Jean-Eugène to study watchmaking seriously, the younger Robert ordered a copy of Traite de Lagerie. The Watch Trade, from the local bookseller. And according to Robert Audin's memoirs, this was a significant development for him in his career, because when he received that parcel and took it home and opened it up, it was not what he ordered. Instead of the manual of the watchmaker's industry that he was expecting, he got a two-volume set of Amusements des Sciences, that's Scientific Amusements. And when he opened this incorrect book, he was completely absorbed and began reading it without even meaning to. He attributed his finding of his life's calling to this accidental switch by the bookseller. A good point to remind listeners that his memoirs were intended to be entertaining above all else. There are a few different points where he says, and that was the most important moment of my life. But this was, he he basically got a book that was teaching him how to make small mechanical things even more intricate than he had already been working on. Uh, But again, we can't be entirely sure if any of Roberudan's stories of this nature are entirely true.
0: Regardless, starting in the late 1820s, he became fascinated with magic. Unlike his encounter with Dr. Garlsbach, which left him with no information, these books opened up a whole world of information to him, and he just devoured it. But though he had read the whole thing in a matter of days, he was still left without anybody to show him how tricks really needed to work in the real world. To make up for the lack of a mentor, he did things like take juggling lessons. He practiced tricks based on the drawings in the book. Dan used the lack of a mentor to just bolster the idea uh, that he came up with much of his stage act on his own out of thin air. But among his effects found after his death were four notebooks written by a man notated only as Monsieur David, who was himself an amateur magician. These notebooks were filled with notes and comments on the acts of many magicians that Monsieur David had seen performed.
1: Yeah, so while he's like, no, I had to, like, basically try to act it out based on pictures and books, and I taught myself everything. He, in fact, had lots of information about (laughs) how magic was performed. But throughout all of this discovery of magic for Jean-Eugène, he was still an apprentice to his cousin in the watch shop. He later wrote of learning simple tricks during his early career in Watchworks, quote, Although my time was fully occupied here, I managed to continue my pocket practice, and I daily noticed with joy the progress I was making, thanks to my constant exercises. I had learned how to make any object I held in my hand disappear with the greatest ease. And as for the principles of card tricks, they were only child's play to me, and I could produce some delightful illusions." I confess to feeling a degree of pride in my humble power of amusing my friends, and I neglected no occasion of displaying it.
0: In the spring of 1828, he was declared graduated from his apprenticeship. At that point, he started a tour of France to work in the best watchmaker shops all around the country to further refine his skills that wasn't an unusual practice at the time, and during his travels, he claimed that he once had food poisoning so bad that it caused him delirium. He said that he ordered a coach to take him back to Blois, but then jumped out in a moment of frenzy from this fever that he had, and he fell to the ground unconscious. When he woke up, there was a stranger taking care of him.
1: And that was the moment that changed his life. It was another one of those. Uh, according to Robert Audin, that was how he met his magic mentor, a man who went by the stage name Torini, who was really Edmond de Grisi, the son of Count de Grisi. Torini, or Edmond, is a very romantic figure in Robert Audin's writing with a dramatic and sad backstory and this traveling magician nursed Jean-Eugène back to health and taught him conjuring tricks. And before the two men parted ways, Jean-Eugène even stepped in for Torini when he was injured in an accident and could not perform as a way of paying him back for the kindness that he had shown in caring for him. Dramatic! It's all very romantic. Um, incidentally, there isn't really any hard evidence found to indicate that de Grisi or his stage persona, Torini were real. He very well might have been, but Robert Houdin's writing is also influential enough that Torini often appears in lists of historical magicians, and much of what we know, in air quotes about him, comes from these accounts.
0: After his time abroad, studying watchmaking and magic, Jean-Eugène Robert returned to Blois, where his aging grandfather was near death. When the old man died, he left his grandson a considerable amount of money, enough that he could really kick around doing whatever he wanted for a while. But Roberto Dan's late-in-life account of this time suggests that he was still getting a lot of pressure from his father to settle down, find a wife, and become a watchmaker. He relayed that he was often called to defend his bachelorhood, and one evening when he was doing so at a social event, something surprising happened. It was the moment that changed his life again.
1: <laughs> Yet another! Um, he wrote, quote, Now it happened that among the persons listening to this description of the blessings of celibacy was a young lady of 17 who inclined a serious ear to my arguments against marriage. It was the first time I had met her, so I could not ascribe any other reason for her fixed attention than her desire to detect the word. A man is always delighted to find an attentive listener, more especially when it is a pretty young girl. Hence, I thought it my bounden duty to make some polite remarks to her during the course of the evening. A conversation ensued and became so interesting that we had a great deal still to say to each other when the hour came for separation, and I believe the regret at parting was not felt by myself alone. The simple event was, however, the cause of my marriage with Mademoiselle Houdin, and this marriage took me to Paris. That marriage, incidentally, I like how he rushes through the whole thing and it's just like, and then we were married like it happened at the end of the night. Um, That marriage actually took place in July of 1830 uh, and things were not quite as speedy as that account makes it seem. Robert moved to Paris before they were married and he negotiated the marriage contract with his bride's father. Cecile actually didn't know the wedding was being arranged until that deal was struck and complete. This
0: all sounds very magical. Uh, maybe romantic, definitely accidental, but there are too many ties to Jean-Eugène's life in Blois for it to have really been a surprise. For one, the young woman who became his wife, Josepha Cécile Eglantine was also from Blois. She was the cousin of Jean-Eugène's stepmother, Marguerite Rosalie Medivy. Historians think this meeting probably took place in the home of the architect Pinon Midivi, who was Marguerite Rosalie's brother. It just so happened that Joseph Cecil's father was a watchmaker. It's believed this is why Robert Dan chose to hyphenate his name. He worked in his father-in-law's shop and joined the family business, so he made their name his name.
1: Yeah, it does seem a little too perfect the way all of this clicks together that his family wasn't like, hey, Cecile should be at this party because she might be a really good match (laughs) (laughs) for Sean Yuxin. It it seems pretty obvious that some sort of maneuvering of that nature must have happened. We will talk about how Robert Rodin's life changed once he had moved to Paris and settled into married life. But before we do that, we'll have a word from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. was not the only thing for Jean-Eugène in Paris. There were also conjurers performing all the time. He was able to go to a new show every night when he wished. He also made the acquaintance of professional magicians in Paris, and he also had exposure to many clockwork automata. If you've been listening to the show for a long time, you may remember our 2013 episode on historical robots that featured a lot of automata. We've also run that as a classic. And that particular entertainment of automata was very much in vogue in Paris at this time.
0: There are two particular men who Robert Oden came to know while traveling through the side streets of the Paris magic scene. One of those was a man known as Père Rougeau. His full name was Alexandre-François Rougeau, and while he was listed in the city directory as a tinsmith... He actually sold magician's props out of his shop at 5 Rue Richelieu. Robert Rodin had found a magic shop, but Rujol's works were not like small entertainments. He did offer some small-scale props for sleight-of-hand tricks, but he also built and sold much larger automata for bigger spectacles. Rujol is said to have had a catalog of 132 different tricks for sale, his shop was also a social nexus for magicians, and it was there that Robert Rodin met a lot of other conjurers. He also wrote a book, Recueil de Recreation de Physique Amusante, the recreations of physical amusements, that documented how a lot of these large scale automata worked. It's an important work in the history of conjuring, and it gave later practitioners vital information about the mechanical aspects of this art.
1: The other important figure who came into Robert Houdin's life in Paris was Christin Emmanuel Apollinaire Comte, a Swiss-born magician who was also the son of a watchmaker. It Seems like everybody's dad made watches for a living. Monsieur Comte had performed for Louis XVIII in the 18-teens and was granted the title of the king's conjurer for so amusing the monarch. King Louis-Philippe granted him the honor Chevalier de Légion d'Honneur during his reign. Comte is often credited with establishing ventriloquism as part of conjuring acts, although this was more about throwing his voice around a theater than what you might think of uh, a ventriloquist being using puppets or dolls. He also is sometimes credited with being the first performer to pull a rabbit out of a hat, though other magicians sometimes get that credit.
0: Comte was someone whose work in creating fantastical stage acts was something that Roberto Dan admired, of course— but he seemed almost more entranced by the Comte as a businessman. He wrote of him, quote, Comte was also an object of interesting study to me, both as manager and as artist. As manager, Comte could have challenged the most skillful to a comparison, and he was a famous hand at bringing grist to his mill, the little schemes a manager employs to attract the public and increase his receipts are tolerably well-known, but Compt for a long time did not require to have recourse to them, as his room was always crowded. He also wrote about the various ways that Comte bolstered income when theater attendance waned. He offered various kinds of discounted tickets and group rates and then offered additional things for sale to make up the gap, and he added a small cafe at the side of the theater. Patrons paid for a cup of coffee or a cordial, and then the waiter would admit them to the theater through a door that enabled them to pass by the line, skip to the front, be
1: the first at the box office. Pretty ingenious. Um, <laughs> I would do that. Dine in our cafe, get a cocktail, and then you Skip can be the, the first. To, that sounds great to me. Uh, there were things that Robert Rudin saw in Comte's shows that he actually thought could be plussed up or ways that they might be staged differently for added spectacle, He certainly was not thinking seriously at this point of taking to the stage himself, and with pretty good reason. For one, he just didn't have the experience to try to compete in the Paris magic scene. And for another, no one competed with the king's conjurer, not at his own style of act. There were other amusements vying for the money of entertainment seekers, like the phantasmagoria. But even though there were some other conjurers playing here and there, Comte ruled supreme at this point.
0: But the combination of inspiration from watching Comte's act and business, seeing the automatons and other props in Rujol's shop, and his own ingenuity led Robert Dan to start making mechanical showpieces of his own. He still wasn't performing any tricks on stage, though, but he did sell his mechanisms to other performers. He also repaired other people's automata out of the watch shop and brushed up against one that we talked about in that earlier five historical robots episode, in 1844, he uh, he repaired Vonkenstone's famous pooping robot duck.
1: <laughs> we can't get away from that duck. Uh, in the early 1840s were actually pretty rough for Roberto Dem. In October of 1843, his wife Cecile died. She had been through a lengthy illness. We don't know specifically what it was. Uh, she had given birth to seven children over the course of their 13-year marriage, but four of those children had died, their surviving children, Emile, Marie-Rosalie, and Prosper Eugène, had to be cared for. While Emile, the eldest, stayed with Jean-Eugène, the younger two children went to Blois to stay with their grandfather. But then, just five months after Cécile died, in February of 1844, Marie-Rosalie and Jean-Eugène's father, Prosper Robert, both died on the same day. At this point,
0: Robert Rodin had his two sons to care for, and he didn't really know how. So he remarried. The young woman was Marguerite-Francoise Olympe-Braconnier, who went by Olympe. She was 28, and according to Robert Rodin's correspondence with a friend, she had not initially wanted to get married. She had resolved that she would stay single and live with her mother. She was also reluctant to take on Jean-Eugène's two children, but... Eventually, she acquiesced. The two of them got married on August twenty second, 1844, in Paris.
1: It was not long after his second wedding that Robert Houdin met another figure who has come up on the show many times, Phineas Taylor Barnum. Barnum was in Paris for the 1844 exposition, an event at which Robert Houdin was an exhibitor. The watchmaker showed off many of the automata he had made, but one in particular was the star. This was a piece called the Writing and Drawing Automaton. You'll also see it as the Writing and Drawing Man. Sometimes it's the scribe. It gets called different things in different historical accounts. And it was, as the name indicates, a human-shaped figure that could write and draw when prompted. But more than that, it answered questions posed to it. And it would answer those questions by drawing or writing out the answer.
0: And that automaton really enchanted the most illustrious visitor to the expo. Not Barnum, but we'll be coming back to him. The visitor in question here was King Louis-Philippe. For the king, the automaton answered the question of how many people lived in Paris. It wrote 998,964 although the king was hoping it would have predictively known the number that had just been tabulated by a new census that was not published yet. The automaton also finished poems, and it did so for Louis-Philippe. It also wrote poetry, and it drew a crown. Roberodan won a silver medal, and the king himself presented it to him with the words, You enrich me, I honor you, etched on there.
1: When the expo finished, Roberto Dan sold the writing and drawing man to PT Barnum. This actually is a situation that later led Houdini to believe that Roberto Dan was some sort of fraud. Houdini notes in his book The Unmasking of Roberto Dan that Roberto Dan only ever showed the writing automaton at the expo and nothing quite like it ever appeared in any of the shows he would later perform. Houdini wrote, quote, this question naturally arises. If Robert Dam built the original writing and drawing figure, why could he not make a duplicate and include it in his program? Surely it was one of the most remarkable of the automata, which he claims is the creations of his brain and hands. Biographer Christian Feschner theorized that Barnum, who purchased the device for use in his shows most likely called for the inclusion of an exclusivity clause in the purchase agreement. I.e., if Robert Audin had made copies of that same figure, Barnum's would not have been as effective as an audience draw.
0: There's also a really interesting account written by Barnum about the expo and Robert Audin's mechanical wonder. He wrote, quote, I paid a round price for this most ingenious little figure, which was an automaton writer and artist. It sat on a small table, pencil in hand, and if asked, for instance, for an emblem of fidelity, it would instantly draw the picture of a handsome dog. If love was wanted, a Cupid was exquisitely penciled. The automaton would also answer many questions in writing. During my visit, Houdin was giving evening legerdemain performances, and by his pressing invitation, I frequently was present. He took great pains, too, to introduce me to other inventors and exhibitors of moving figures, which I liberally purchased, making them prominent features in the attractions of the American Museum.
1: This account is really, really interesting, specifically because it offers a glimpse at Robert Houdin's personality that is rather counter to the way he was portrayed by Houdini later on. Houdini's book that we've mentioned, The Unmasking of Robert Audin, includes this description of his one-time hero, Quote, Stripped of his self-woven veil of romance, Robert Audin stood forth, in the uncompromising light of cold historical facts, a mere pretender, a man who waxed great on the brainwork of others, a mechanician who had boldly filched the inventions of the master craftsman among his predecessors. Houdini really makes the case that Robert Houdin took credit for the works of others and was really entirely self-serving. But then when you look at Barnum's account, it sounds like he had certainly enough generosity of spirit to make sure other people who worked in his field, so people that were theoretically his competitors at market also had the chance to be seen by Barnum and to sell their inventions to him. This really jumped out at me because it just illustrates how differently two people can perceive the same person and how their own biases may color that perception and then how that gets relayed through the ages to us who are trying to learn about these people.
0: And that's where we will leave this one, because after that 1844 exposition, a lot changed for Robert Dan in just a very short period of time.
1: And since we're talking about art and fun things, uh, I'm going to read an art-themed listener mail. (laughs) That sounds great. (laughs) This is from our listener Tara, who writes, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I love your podcast, and I listen all the time. My name is Tara Barr, and I'm an artist based in the Torpedo Factory Art Center in Alexandria, Virginia. The Torpedo Factory was built in 1919 and served as a munitions plant through the end of World War II. After it was decommissioned, it sat vacant as an eyesore until the mid-'70s when a group of artists petitioned the city to convert it into art studios. Today, it is a three-story building taking up half a city block on the Potomac River waterfront in Old Town, Alexandria. Over 200 artists work and exhibit here. In addition to art studios, there are also art classrooms, printmaking workshops, galleries, an archaeology museum, and an art supply store. The Torpedo Factory is open to the public seven days a week, and all our studios are open to the public so visitors can come see us making our art anytime. I'm including some pictures to entice you to visit the next time you're in the Washington, D.C. area. Your podcast keeps me company during many long hours of painting. Many of my pieces relate to or are directly inspired by your episodes. I wanted to send you some art gifts, but I know you don't have a physical mailing address right now, so I'm linking to some images below so you can at least look at some art. Expect some art goodies in the mail if you ever share your new mailing address in the future. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't have any cute kitty pictures to share because my husband is allergic to cats and we cannot have one. Attaching a painting of a cat instead. Thank you for all you do and keep up the good work, Uh, Tara. Uh, here's the thing. Tara is amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. and I normally wouldn't, we don't usually give people's first and last names out of respect for their privacy, but sh- since she uses her name public facing as an artist, uh, I did. I will also tell you that in looking at her art, I bought a painting this morning. <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> so, uh, Tara, thank you for <laughs> alerting me to your work because, uh, I think that's going to be a Christmas present for my husband. Um... Also, go check this out. I I just did a quick Google search for Torpedo Factory Art Center, and there are a lot of amazing artists there doing really amazing work. I did not know this place existed, and now it's top of my list. Should I be in D.C. in the future? Because it looks really cool. <laughs> and it's it's like a magical wonderland if you're into art. It's like a lot of great artists doing really cool art, and you could learn there if you wanted, and you can watch them make art, and you can buy art supplies. This is a theme park of art, basically. Yeah. <laughs> So um, definitely go check that out if you're interested. It's very, very cool. Um, Tara, thank you so much for sending me this. And I love your work. And I really like that kitty painting. That might have been what I was looking for when I went today and ended up buying something completely different. Um, If you would like to write to us and share the art you're making or whatever it is that's on your mind, you can do so at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you have not subscribed yet, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Mm-hmm. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
0: Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was good.